0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in
1: Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
0: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. iHeart3D Audio. This episode was brought to you in iHeart3D Audio. To experience more podcasts like this, search for iHeart3D Audio in the iHeartRadio app. This special 3D episode is sponsored by Audible, the Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It, rated R. And World of Warcraft. For maximum effect, headphones are recommended. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And let me tell you a story about my childhood— My family are all really big Disney theme park fans, and growing up in Georgia meant we were just a short 8 to 10 hour drive from Walt Disney World in Florida. Both of my parents were teachers, and they would save up money so that every two or three years or so, we'd make the trip down. Disney World was always where my sister and I wanted to go, even when my parents gently tried to suggest other places like. Washington, D.C., or New York City. Nope. We want a Disney World. Also, quick aside, these days, we still will take family trips to Disney World, my parents included, and now with my nieces, we get to experience seeing Disney through fresh eyes, which is pretty great. But anyway, back to my story. Back in 1989, the Disney Hollywood Studios Park opened for the first time. Back then, it was Disney MGM Studios. And the studios were a working studio, with films and TV shows shot on the premises. A lot of attractions related to film and TV production. There was The Great Movie Ride, which closed in 2017. There was a behind-the-scenes tour, which... Closed in 2014, and there were various experiences that taught audiences about stuff like special effects, all of which have closed. Almost leads you to the conclusion that the Hollywood studios aren't so much the Hollywood studios anymore, but I'm off track again. One of those experiences was all about sound effects, and it was called The Monster Sound Show. I remember that the attraction featured a clip of a film starring Martin Short and Chevy Chase, and it had a lot of sound effects that played in that movie. Then the attraction host would bring up some audience members to try and create sound effects live on stage using various props while a silent version of the film played, and then they would play the film back again with the new audience-supplied Foley sound effects in place a great comedic effect. After that presentation, however, you could wander through the rest of the attraction. And tucked off to the side were a couple of rooms, large enough to hold a few people at a time, and they were called sound stations. Inside those rooms were benches attached to the walls, and there were hooks holding headphones every couple of feet. You would go in, you would sit down, you would put on the headphones, making sure that the headphone with the yellow pad went over your right ear. And then something extraordinary happened. As the lights went down, you were presented with a scenario. You were playing the part of a new executive at the Walt Disney Studios named R.J. McBean. You're told you're sitting behind your executive desk, waiting for your assistant Hampton to come in and start off your day. And the sound orbited you. You'd hear the narrator set up the scenario, and her voice drifted from one ear to the other. As if she were actually walking around you while you sat at this fictional desk. And then the scenario would really begin, and things got really wild. A little tinkerbell jingling would represent the true beginning, and you would hear Hampton come in. He would walk through on a door to your right. And then you'd hear him pontificate as he walks through your office. He would pour a fizzy drink into a glass of ice. And he introduced you to your secretary, Shirley. Oh, and also said you would get a haircut from a stylist named Ken. Uh, Because, of course, the big cheese is on his way to meet you. And... The haircut sounds in particular were really compelling. You could almost feel the sensation of someone cutting your hair. And I say this as a bald man who hasn't had hair in more than 20 years. Meanwhile, as the hair goes flying, a director called Flavio shows up and pitches a new film to you, complete with using a hairdryer to simulate desert winds. There are a lot of other cute sound effects that follow, like a paper being placed over your head to represent a turban. And you can actually find recordings of this piece online, though I will warn you, the effects aren't quite up to the quality of the original attraction, which also incorporated stuff like actual blowers to blow warm air on you. Oh, and uh, that big cheese who comes in at the end? Well, that's Mickey Mouse, of course he comes in to place a pair of mouse ears on top of your head. The whole thing lasted about five minutes, and I loved it. And at the end, you were instructed to remove your headphones, hang them back on the wall, and exit the room, whereupon you'd head outside to the blazing Florida sun and the wild audio of the real outdoors. That was how I first experienced 3D audio. At that time, it was based off a technology that had a brand name of holophonics. These days, we'd more likely call it binaural audio, or maybe just 3D audio. And there are a lot of different ways to create the experience, some of which require special equipment, others that require special software. You can find examples of 3D audio in music recordings, amusement park attractions, and stuff like ASMR videos. It can be a really compelling experience. And I remember getting goosebumps the first time I encountered it. And depending on who's doing the recording and the effects that they're creating, I can still get goosebumps from it today. Longtime listeners might remember that a few years back, I interviewed an ASMR artist named Heather Feather, who was one of a handful of creators who were really making ASMR a phenomenon. Now we have thousands of creators. If you do a search on YouTube for ASMR, you will see countless videos in the category. But the technology and psychology behind this experience goes back quite a ways. So I want to explore the evolution and technology behind making 3D audio. Now in the beginning, there was mono. That is monoral or monophonic sound. This sound can come from a single loudspeaker. Or it could be channeled to multiple loudspeakers, but the signal going to each loudspeaker is exactly the same as every other loudspeaker. It's effectively a single channel of sound. It's how we do podcasts, typically, where you usually will hear the same level of volume in each ear. For shows with multiple hosts, it means that you hear all the hosts in both ears equally. Most listeners tend to prefer that. But very early on, people started to experiment with ways to provide more than one channel of sound simultaneously to a listener to create a different kind of experience. Way back in 1881, when the loudspeaker itself was just a few years old—Alexander Graham Bell had patented it in 1876 as part of his telephone invention Well, that's when a man named Clement Adder came up with a clever idea. One of the downsides of live theater is that it is a scarce resource. Only so many people can fit into a theater for a performance. And once that performance is over, it's all done. So there is an element of exclusivity when it comes to live theater. Something that remains true because, I mean, it's just the limitations of the art. But Adder thought of a way that would help people listen in to, say, a performance of an opera without having to actually go to the opera house. His demonstration involved installing telephone receivers in a few rooms at the Palais de l'Industrie, the microphones he installed near the footlights at the Grand Opera in Paris. So they were across town. People could come into these rooms at the Palais in small groups And they would hold two receivers, one to each ear. Each receiver connected to a different microphone, which meant the sound they were hearing was actually coming from two different locations. In an article in Scientific American, uh, Monsieur Hospitalier is quoted as saying, quote, "...everyone who has been fortunate enough to hear the telephones at the Palais de l'Industrie has remarked that in listening with both ears at the two telephones... The sound takes a special character of relief and localization which a single receiver cannot produce. End quote. This was a very early and primitive version of stereophonic sound. For those of us who have hearing in both of our ears, we experience the world in stereo. Sound travels at a certain speed, it's 343 meters per second if you have an air temperature of around 20 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And yes, the temperature affects how quickly sound will move through the air. And our ears are located upon opposite sides of our noggins. That means that sound hits our two eardrums at slightly different times, depending upon where it's coming from. And we will perceive sound coming from one side of us as being louder in that ear, than in our opposite ear, and so on. So mono sound shoves all of those sound waves through one channel. Everything is coming out equally through each loudspeaker. Stereo sound, however, changes this up, varying the amplitude or volume of sound in each channel and creating a different effect. While Adder's demonstration indicated that there was something interesting with producing sound using different channels directed at different loudspeakers, That was just the tip of the iceberg. Alan Dower Blumline would advance the art considerably in the 1930s. Blumline was born in 1903. He became an electronics engineer, and he worked for the famous Abbey Road Studios, where he pioneered advancements in stereophonic recording. According to an anecdote told by Alan Blumline's son, Simon, Blumline was at the movies with his wife, watching a film, and he remarked that, were a blind person to go to the movies, they might struggle to follow what was going on because the sound was all coming from loudspeakers in mono. There was no way to detect through hearing where people were within a scene. Everyone would sound like they were in the same spot. You would only be able to hear if someone was further or closer to a microphone. But otherwise, spatially, you would have no idea what was going on. And that got him into thinking about developing a system that would allow sound engineers to record and reproduce sound so that it had a more localized effect. Action happening on the left side of the screen would be represented by sounds emanating from loudspeakers on the left side of the theater. Likewise, action on the right side would be paired with an appropriate amount of sound coming from the right, Each speaker might produce some of the sound, but at different amplitudes, so that while you might get a little bit of the right-hand sound from left-hand speakers, the levels would be lower, and the overall feeling would be that you're in the middle of that sound, and it would enhance the experience of seeing a movie, as well as help out those who are visually impaired follow what was going on. According to that anecdote, Blumlein called it binaural sound, which, of course, we'll come back to a bit later in this episode. I just find it interesting that the original term for stereo is one we now associate with a more specific approach to audio recording and production. He would receive more than 70 patents for his various inventions related to stereo sound. He created technology to record, process, and reproduce audio in stereo. In 1934, he oversaw a stereo recording of the London Philharmonic Orchestra at the Abbey Road Studios. Blumline also pioneered the Blumline method, which would use two microphones mounted at a 90-degree angle with regard to one another to pick up directional sounds in a recording environment. So in other words, if you think of a room as a square, one mic is picking up sounds primarily along the X-axis— and the other is picking up sound along the Y-axis. Blumline also figured out how to create a stereo groove in a record album. Back in those days, these were made from shellac, but they would later be made from vinyl. And when I think about that, I'm astonished. I mean, the way a record player works is that a stylus, or needle, fits into the groove of a record. That groove causes the stylus to vibrate, And those vibrations transmit to a transducer, which turns the vibrations into an electrical signal, thanks to a little electromagnet magic. And that signal then goes to an amplifier, which boosts the signal strength, which then goes on to loudspeakers and powers them so that they can reproduce the original recorded sound that created the groove in the first place. It's the edges of these grooves that cause the vibration or the the wiggle of the stylus, So how does one record stereo sound to a physical disc with a groove? Well, imagine a groove that slaloms back and forth in a nice, even path. So the waves along either side of the groove are a physical representation of the original sound waves that were recorded. Now... Usually, in a mono record, you would just see that these waves are evenly distributed on the left and right side. It's like they're in sync with one another. It's just a nice, smooth curve. But what if you wanted to record stereo? Well, you could have it where the left side of the groove and the right side of the groove are actually different. The wall on one side would represent the audio recorded in one channel— And the wall on the other side of the groove was for the second channel. So with the proper equipment, you could play this record back, and the stylus would vibrate in a very specific way. It would be detected by two sensors connected to the stylus. So essentially two transducers. And these two channels of sound could again go to specific loudspeakers, a left and a right, and then you get stereo playback. It's pretty incredible. Listening back to properly recorded and processed audio would give the listener the sensation that they were actually in an acoustic space. It would feel as though you were standing at the spot where the microphone had been mounted and that the sound you encounter is just as if you were present at the recording session. That was the intent anyway, but the actual process of getting there is a lot more complicated than setting up just a pair of microphones. When we come back... We'll learn a bit more about stereo recording and editing. And we'll also learn why the Beatles, who also made famous recordings at Abbey Road Studios, concentrated on creating mono records for a long time, even though stereo had been around for decades. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R.com. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward
2: advice on how to deal with
0: I've done episodes about sound to film in the past, and also sound on television, so I'm going to skip over all of that. Otherwise, this episode would be four or five hours long. Instead, I want to talk a bit more about stereo recordings and why bands like The Beatles were slow to adopt them. To listen to a stereo recording properly, you need a stereo system. That is, you need a sound system that has at least two loudspeakers and a way to send the different channels of sound to both the left and the right speakers, or independently to the left and right speakers. Otherwise, the playback would be in mono, even if the recording were in stereo. And what you would get is a weird case where some elements of the recording would be really quiet, as those would be the sounds recorded to a channel that wasn't getting picked up by the mono playback system. Now, if you've ever listened to a recording where some of the voices or instruments sound unusually quiet, and that it doesn't sound like this was done on purpose, it's likely because either someone mixed the audio improperly, or it's a stereo recording that at some point got converted over into mono, and you're losing some of the audio as a result. Stereo systems were really expensive when they first came out. I'm talking about like stereo systems that you would purchase for your home, and a lot of people, particularly young people, had really purchased record players that had a single speaker incorporated into the player itself. So these were mono playback devices, as there was only one speaker for sound to go. The Beatles, being a band whose music was disproportionately favored by the young, had their audience in mind as they mixed their albums. It's said that for many of the albums from the early to mid-period of the Beatles as a band, the group would spend HOURS in the mixing studio to get the mono mix just right. But when it came time to do the stereo mixes, they left that to the audio engineers at Abbey Road and were never around. So why is that? Well, because to them, the mono recordings were more important. That was what their fan base could enjoy. For that reason, a lot of Beatles fans or purists favor the mono recordings of early Beatles work. They eschew the stereo recordings as failing to represent what it was the Beatles were trying to achieve. And if you listen to the mono versus stereo recordings of some of those early songs, like Paperback Writer or Eleanor Rigby, you really can tell there is a major difference. And this leads into one way to create a stereo or 3D audio sound. You can take a recording and you can change how much of the signal gets sent to a particular channel. That determines which loudspeaker or set of loudspeakers will play back the audio, or more likely, how much volume that particular sound will have in each loudspeaker. This is both a science and an art. A lot of the work in this field was centered around music, and music can contain a wide range of frequencies and tones. Imagine an orchestra. You have instruments that primarily create lower frequencies, like lower pitches. You've got tubas and basses and cellos. Each of those instruments, while creating notes that might be in the same general range, have distinct sounds. A tuba and an upright bass do not sound the same, in other words. Then you've got instruments that center on some of the higher frequencies, like flutes and piccolos and violins. These also sound different from one another, and so it became important to figure out how to not just capture a recording and divide it into channels to create spatial landscapes, but also how to balance out the tones so that you don't lose anything in the process. With the wrong mix, one instrument or group of instruments might totally overpower another, and it's almost as if those other instruments were never even present at the original recording. And so processing recordings and getting the mix just right became critical. One part of this is called panning, and it relies on a pan control. In the old days, you would use a mixing board with physical controls on it to control the pan. The pan determines how much signal from each input is sent to each channel. These days, many audio producers work with digital audio workstations, or DAWs. And with a DAW, you also control panning. You can pan either mono or stereo tracks. Most DAWs will let you convert one type of track into another, splitting a mono into stereo or combining stereo into mono. For certain types of audio, like many podcasts, the default is to go to mono. It can be a little disconcerting if you record and publish a podcast in stereo. Many years ago, when I first started recording Large Nerdron Collider with my friend Ariel, I accidentally recorded and published several episodes in stereo. Which meant... All of my audio was in one channel, like the left channel, and all of Ariel's audio was in the other channel, the right channel. So it's like I was talking into your left ear, and Ariel was talking into your right ear, which was very unsettling. I eventually figured out what I was doing, and I began mixing our recordings into a mono track to avoid that problem. And with some early stereo recordings, you can hear examples of Problems like this. It's frequently disconcerting. There are recordings of songs in which all the instrumentation is on one side and all the vocals are on the other side. Now, that might have been done purposefully, but it was often a sort of heavy-handed approach to stereo— There are times an artist might desire that specific effect, but other times the desire was to be a bit more creative with stereo, and you might have a track in which the vocalist is on the extreme right of part of the recording, then on the extreme left later on. uh, The Beatles' A Day in the Life actually falls into that category. Or you might want to create a rich soundscape in which there is a sense of location for all the sound. Maybe... Not something that is explicitly communicated to the listener, but is an important representation of the performance. So, how about we play around with some post-processing panning to create a three-dimensional experience? My producer, Tari, who is a superstar here at iHeart, is always critical to the success of this show. But in a moment, she's going to take over the experience of what this show sounds like to you, the audience, And I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do in 3D audio. I'm going to give you a little Shakespeare. This piece is the prologue to Henry V. One of Shakespeare's company, designated the chorus, implores the audience to use their imaginations to augment the production of the play itself. And so, as you listen to this piece, imagine you are seated on a stage with the chorus walking around you, explaining your role in creating the theatrical experience. Now, I admit, I'm cheating a little bit here, because the whole point of this passage is to say that theater is incapable of creating an exact copy of the story of Henry V and England's battles with France. But you also have to remember, I'm a former English literature major, and I never get to do Shakespeare. So... Here we go. Headphones on. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage. Princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then, should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But, pardon gentles all, the flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden o the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon. Since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces' work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts, divide one man. And make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them. Printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Carry them here and there. Jumping over times. Turning the accomplishment of many years... Into an hourglass, for the witch supply, admit me, chorus, to this history, who, prologue like, your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. So, for that recording, I went into our studio at iHeart, and I spoke into a normal studio microphone. All the manipulation had been done in post production which is an effective way to achieve that 3D audio sound, but it does require a lot of work on the part of the producer. But the 3D audio I did at the top of this episode was done in a different way. I used a special microphone. When we come back, I'll talk a bit about that technology, and we'll learn about some companies that have produced specialized equipment for the purposes of 3D audio. But first, let's take another quick break. and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R.com.
2: Today, I'm going to give you
0: some straightforward advice on how to deal with While some engineers and artists experimented with binaural recordings for a while, it wasn't until 1978 that the first pop record using binaural recordings came out. It was Lou Reed's Street Hassle. Listening to that album with headphones on is pretty cool. To achieve the effect, studio engineers took a mannequin head and installed a microphone at each ear and used that to record sessions. A company called Delta Acoustics put the system together, with Manfred Schunk supervising. Reed made a couple of other albums in binaural audio. Uh, One was the live Take No Prisoners album, and the other was The Bells. Other bands would experiment and record in binaural as well. The Rolling Stones did it for their album Flashpoint, which was a concert recording of some of their big hits and rarities. Pearl Jam recorded a studio album called Binaural, recorded, fittingly, in binaural, the tech used to record these albums changed slightly, but it was still based on the same underlying principles. I think it's pretty widely understood that our ears receive sound in the form of vibrations through a medium, such as the air, and then through interactions with the eardrum and the cochlea and special nerves sending information to the brain, we interpret those vibrations as sound. In a very simple way of looking at it, sound comes into our ears. But did you know our ears also generate sound? Because they totally do. It's called autoacoustic emission, or OAE. Now, to get into OAEs, how they work, and their role in stuff like medicine is beyond the scope of this podcast, and more importantly, way outside my general expertise. But it is true that a very sensitive microphone inserted into the ear canal of a person with hearing will pick up spontaneous autoacoustic emissions, or SOAEs. Now, most folks can't detect these sounds. They tend to be at very low frequencies that dip below human perception, and they are usually at very low amplitudes, so they're pretty quiet. But in some cases, people might actually hear the sounds generated within their own inner ears and experience it as tinnitus. I'm one of those people. Yay, me? Now, the reason I bring up that fact that the inner ear can be not just a receptacle for sound but also a generator of sound is because an inventor named Hugo Zuccarelli used that as the basis for a system he called holophonics. His idea was that our hearing isn't a passive thing, that the inner ear generates signals that interfere with the incoming audio signals, and the resulting interaction between the sounds made by our ears and the sounds coming into our ears plays a part in sound localization. Now, long story short, Zuccarelli's hypothesis doesn't have a lot of support in the broader scientific community. However, Zuccarelli's equipment could record and reproduce sound in a really interesting way. It's just the whole interference angle of what was going on seemed inconsequential. Zuccarelli used microphones to stand in for human ears spaced apart so that a sound from any given direction would reach one microphone before the other, and the amplitude of the signal would depend upon things such as the distance between the microphone and the origin of the sound, as well as the angle at which the sound waves would reach the microphone. Zuccarelli made a bunch of different recordings to demonstrate this technology. Something called the Shaking Matchbox Recordings, because that was one of the sounds he actually recorded using this system. Whether his underlying hypothesis was correct or not, the recordings were effective, and Zuccarelli's approach created a way to make really localized audio effects. That's essentially what was going on with the Disney sound stations. Some of the microphones used by recording studios even resembled a human head, with microphones literally placed where the ears should be. And that also plays a part in recording a sound accurately, so that the playback will seem as though you are really there as you listen to it. Beyond just the fact that our ears are on opposite sides of our heads, and the sound will reach each ear at different times and amplitudes, other factors also shape the nature of the sound we perceive. The shape of our heads, the density of our noggins, our sinuses, all of that affects our perception of sound. Collectively, We call all of this head-related transfer functions, or HRTF. The technology of holophonics systems and later binaural microphones attempts to replicate the experience of hearing hyper-localized sounds through the application of HRTF. But this process is incredibly complicated, and um, it's mathy, So I'm not going to go into deep detail, which is good because I would likely mess up the explanation. Also, it's important to acknowledge that every person is different, which means there is no universal solution toward creating the perfect binaural recording that will convince every listener that they are hearing sounds coming from ultra-specific directions. You kind of have to go more general to get a good response. But the more precise you try to get, the more the results will only work super well for a specific person, you know, whomever it was modeled for, and not working quite as well for anyone else. For many years, the microphones used to create binaural recordings in studio were prohibitively expensive and far too complicated for the average consumer. You would occasionally find binaural recordings, such as the one at Disney World, but these were pretty rare and very specialized, and only big companies like Disney could afford to do them. However, over time, companies began to develop microphones that fell more into the range of the prosumer, with some consumer-level solutions thrown in there as well. Today, there is a range of microphones one can use to create 3D audio. The microphone I used earlier in this episode is is a 3DIO binaural mic, or a 3DO if you prefer. You may have seen one of these if you watch a lot of ASMR videos. They are very popular. The microphone looks like a horizontal bar with two silicone ears attached to either end of that bar. The ears are spaced apart to mimic a typical human head's width. The 3DO doesn't have the mass of a head. It's just that bar in the ears. It doesn't have the sinus cavities or anything like that. So it is not a perfect simulacrum of a person's auditory system, but it gets the job done. That style of microphone typically retails for around $400. So it's a little bit on the pricey side, but it kind of falls between consumer and prosumer. However, you can achieve similar results using totally different microphone setups. They typically require XLR microphones that connect to a recording device that can accept multiple inputs, recording each microphone to its own audio channel. It's possible to use two normal microphones and space them apart from each other and create a binaural experience, though it might take some experimentation to get the spacing and gain levels just right so that it all feels natural. Or, of course, you could just do it in post. But, like I said, that relies heavily on a ton of work on the back end of things. And ASMR artists are not the only ones using binaural audio. It's also useful for stuff like virtual reality experiences and video games. Sound is a powerful element that contributes to a sense of immersion. And in some games, it's critically important. For example... You might play a first-person shooter game like Player Unknowns Battlegrounds and you really need to use your ears to figure out where other players are in relation to where you are. Not doing so severely reduces your chances of making it through the game. If you'd like to learn more, I would recommend seeking out old Tech Stuff episodes about surround sound, which relates to this topic quite a bit, and also our episodes about audio compression as the processes designed to compress audio tried to take the psychology of perception into account. It's all fascinating stuff. As for 3D audio, I figure I'd leave you all with a little bit of horror. Because 3D audio works really well to immerse a listener into a world, and it is particularly well-suited for tales of terror. Some of my co-workers used it to great effect in a series called 13 Days of Halloween, which we published last October. And so here is a little excerpt from the show they produced. Oh, look at
1: all the fun we're having in here. (laughs) I just knew you two would get along swimmingly. Oh, now, come with me. Soren, we'll catch up with you later, dear heart. (laughs) He is a truly sweet young man. I've been attempting to persuade him to see the good doctor about his cough, but he'll have none of it. Maybe you could be of service in that department. He really seemed to like you. Now, there are hundreds of rooms here at the Hawthorne, but this is perhaps the very finest. And it just so happens to be your quarters. Was it luck or fate that placed you here? We'll never know. I trust that you'll find everything to your liking. And if you don't, notify me and I will make sure it is rectified. It's all part of my role here as the caretaker. You know, your lack of verbal reciprocation is really breaking down my sense of boundaries. I can trust you, right? Of course I can. In these coming days, you may notice that Hawthorne Manor has no shortage of oddities. I've witnessed things myself that strain belief. But there is one strange legend that has truly become something of an obsession. Supposedly, somewhere within these halls, there is a hidden doorway if the tale of what lurks on the other side is to be believed then gaining access would mean a sort of ascension beyond human imagination true immortality I have come to understand that one of our guests knows how to locate and open this door perhaps what they cannot say to me they will happily divulge to you I have a feeling Your quiet fortitude will lure them into a sense of intimacy. (laughs) It has certainly worked on me. (laughs) Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. There are so many others I cannot wait for you to meet.
0: Well, that wraps up this special episode of Tech Stuff. Several of the iHeart shows are including some binaural audio segments, and we've got a lot planned in the 3D audio space in the days up ahead. I really recommend you check it out and explore some of the 3D audio recordings that are available online. You know that Disney one I mentioned? There are actually versions of that up on YouTube. People have the recordings up. I will say that when I was listening back, it sounded like the channels had been swapped, Uh, everything that was supposed to be in my right ear seemed to be coming through the left ear, and I I made sure that I was wearing the headphones correctly. That's an important point, by the way. If you're not wearing your headphones with the proper phone over the proper ear, it's very disconcerting. I double-checked, I was doing it correctly, everything still seemed flipped, and the effect was not nearly as impressive as it was when I went back to Disney. But I should also add... The Disney version incorporated some stuff that headphones just can't do. Stuff like a blower behind each person's back so that when you're getting a haircut in that sequence, the hair dryer would actually blow air on you. So that would add to your sense of immersion. As it stands, for me, if I'm listening to a very well-recorded 3D audio setup, then if someone's speaking quietly into my ear, It's as if I can feel it, because we have to remember, sound, when it gets down to it, really, are that's just vibration. Those vibrations include fluctuations in air pressure. So if you are listening to someone talk into your ear through a speaker, you will feel it, because those are fluctuations in air pressure. It's not something you're imagining. You are feeling it. It might be heightened because of the way the audio was recorded, but it's actually happening to you. I think 3D audio is an incredible technology. There's a lot more we could say about it. And not just from the technological side, but the psychological side and the biological side. So maybe I will do future episodes that will focus on this more. I hope I get a chance to play with the 3D audio microphone more. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing that. I hope that I get to participate in some of the 3D audio recordings that We have planned coming up, including some that are delving into different areas of fiction. I would love to do that. Honestly, I would love to do a full 3D audio version of a Shakespearean play. It is something I have really wanted to do for a long time. I'm not even talking about necessarily being in it, although it would kill me not to be. But to be able to experience a 3D audio version of one of Shakespeare's plays to me would be unbelievably amazing so if you think that's interesting you should write to (laughs) iheart and let them know because i think it would be great i wouldn't mind working on something like that Uh, and let me know what play you think we should do honestly i'm thinking like much ado about nothing i think a, a, a comedy might be fun but that wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for future topics, or maybe you have thoughts about 3D audio you would like to share, reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. My handle is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode was brought to you in iHeart3D Audio. To experience more podcasts like this, search for iHeart3D Audio in the iHeartRadio app. Thank you to our sponsors, Audible, The Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It, rated R, and World of Warcraft. Take control of your business finances today at Concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together
1: in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is
0: the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state of the art lab, you can be sure you're getting top quality herbs. To learn more, visit nature'sway.com.
2: Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh?
1: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah!